So first order of business, cheers to mail call today. Um, that's a little bit more like it. It was touch and go there for a second, but you guys stepped up your game and credit where credit's due. Um, it wasn't as bad as the first day. So tonight's talk is about theological education, and I want to begin the talk with a thesis. Christian education is for the sake of Christian existence. The purpose of theological education, whether it takes place in universities, seminaries, churches, or wherever it takes place, the purpose is to train people to think with the mind of Christ, 1 Corinthians 2, so that they can walk in step with the Spirit, Galatians 5. Theological education is a process of training students to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Jesus Christ, so that in all things, Jesus Christ might have supremacy. And one of the primary reasons why I am so attracted to Karl Barth's way of thinking and why I think he's so important is because he perceives just how incredibly difficult it is to do that. Because religion, including the Christian religion, is usually nothing more than wishful thinking. We don't believe things, very often at least, we don't believe things and teach things because they're true. We believe them and teach them because we want them to be true. All of us who talk about God face the abiding temptation to confuse the real God with false gods. And the only way to avoid that error is to try as hard as we can to submit all of our thinking to God's self-revelation in Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean we're always going to be successful. We're not. But it does mean that that's the way that we ought to at least try to think about God. Bart's point is as simple as it is radical. Either Jesus will become the Lord of our thinking, or our thinking will become futile. Either Jesus is the truth, or the church does not know the truth. There is no middle way between those two options. Jesus or nothing. That is Karl Barth's theological method in a nutshell. And it's a risky strategy. Karl Barth is pushing all of his chips to the center of the table, and he's betting everything on Jesus. But he's doing that because he thinks that there is no other way 
to remain faithful to God's self-revelation or to avoid misguided and self-serving speculation. Now, I know we just started, but I want to make a footnote on this point because Karl Barth is routinely misunderstood as to what he is and is not saying here. Accepting Christ as the criterion of our knowledge of God does not require us to reject extra-biblical or extra-Christian sources of wisdom. It means learning to measure every idea that we encounter, wherever we encounter it, against the standard of God's revelation of himself in Christ. But the claim that Jesus is God's full and definitive self-revelation does not entail the further claim that God reveals himself exclusively in Christ or in Scripture or tradition or anywhere else. God is free to reveal himself however and wherever and to whomever he pleases. And in fact, if God is who Scripture says that he is, and if he is still alive, just because he loves the whole world and because he desires to be known, we would expect him to do precisely that, reveal himself outside the church. This, I, I mean, you may be wondering, oh no, who is this guy? Um, this guy is just communicating to you what he learned from Augustine and Calvin. So if you're sweating, you don't need to. Calvin and Augustine, along with so many other Christian people, have taught us that the gospel liberates us to listen to God's voice wherever God decides to speak. Augustine called this plundering the Egyptians. You know this metaphor he uses. It's a, it's a brilliant metaphor. As Israel is on its way out of Egypt, it asks the Egyptians for silver, gold, etc., and they just give them all of these treasures. And Augustine says, that's what it's like when we read non-Christian philosophy. They have these truths, but they have them um, in a way that they've been given by God, the Spirit. The Spirit is the one who accounts for all of this knowledge outside the church. And it's now the task of Christians to plunder the Egyptians. In other words, to search for truth wherever we might be able to find it. And Karl Barth is not suggesting otherwise. So that's the footnote I want to make. So the first point is just that Jesus Christ transforms our minds and realigns our vision. And cultivating that frame of mind in students or helping in that process or participating in that process is the basic task of theological education. But now I want to say something else. Seeing is not an end in itself. The goal of theological education is not just for people to think differently. It's for people to live differently. Or to put it in another way, Christian theology is not for the sake of Christian theology. 
It's for the sake of Christian existence. And even more truthfully, it's for the sake of existence in the world that would be a light and a loving presence and ultimately a witness to the world that doesn't know Jesus. But the whole point is that it's not just for thinking, it's for living. And my suspicion is that many of the folks tasked with teaching Christianity are better and certainly more comfortable helping people, to use Lewis's really brilliant um, way of speaking about this, at helping them look at the Christian message rather than helping them look along the Christian message. Better at helping them understand Scripture and Christian theology than helping them reflect on the difference that Scripture and Christian theology make for ordinary life. And yet, because the telos or the goal of contemplation is action, or to put it in more biblical terms, because faith without works is dead, both aspects of the task of theological education are essential. The truth offers us a different vantage point on our lives. It discloses new ways of existing. But, and this is really important to notice, envisioning new patterns of life is not the same as living them. Reflecting back on his authorship, Kierkegaard claimed that all of his time and energy was, quote, dedicated to making it clear what Christianity actually is. And to do that, he constantly pointed out that Jesus seeks disciples, not dilettantes. The way that G uh, Kierkegaard put it is that Jesus wants disciples. He doesn't want admirers. Yes, Jesus is the truth, but he is also the way. And to know him, you have to follow him. That's Kierkegaard in a nutshell. Think of John chapter 8. If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples, and then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Notice the sequence of those thoughts. If you hold to my teaching, in other words, if you obey, then you're really my disciples, and then you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Kierkegaard and Bart are not expressing idiosyncratic opinions. Christianity cannot be taught responsibly unless we make it clear to people that the gospel is an indicative, a fact, an announcement, good news. It's an indicative that includes within itself an imperative. It is a summons to respond to the truth in gratitude with the whole of one's existence. And failing to explain that to people or placing the accent so strongly on intellectual comprehension that people unwittingly confuse thinking with existing are, are I think, two of the easiest mistakes to make in theological education. 
and certainly two of the most subtle ways that we as theological educators, and I'm talking about all of us in here, every pastor is a theological educator. This, I think, is one of the subtlest ways, if we do this, that we misrepresent Christianity to people. Over the last decade and a half, I have become convinced that most people who sign up for theological education do so because they want to know why the Christian message matters. Sure, they want to know what Christians think, and of course, they're interested in the question of whether Christianity is true, but they also want to know what difference it makes. People want to sort out what Christianity has to do with them personally and why they should care. And they rightly expect their teachers to help them draw connections between the subject matter and their own lives. And, and this is something you learn very quickly, I think, students become immediately bored if you refuse to do that. Teachers sometimes lament this expectations that students have of us, or sometimes we even invent snobby reasons why they shouldn't have that expectation, and so we ridicule it. But to me, their demand of us makes perfect sense. Students are correct to assume that we owe that to them. Kierkegaard penetratingly expressed the longing that lies behind this expectation in a famous journal entry that he wrote when he was a young man. And I want to quote it to you at length. What I really need is to be clear about what I need to do, not what I need to know, except in the way that knowledge must precede all action. It's a question of understanding my own destiny, of seeing what God really wants me to do. The thing is, to find a truth that's truth for me, to find the idea for which I am willing to live and die. What use would it be to be able to explain the meaning of Christianity if it had no deeper meaning for myself and my own life? What use would it be if the truth were to stand there before me, cold and naked, not caring whether I acknowledge it or not? inducing an anxious shiver rather than trusting devotion. Certainly, I won't deny that I still accept an imperative of knowledge and that through it, one can also influence people, but truth must be taken up alive in me. And this is what I now see as the main point. It is this that my soul thirsts for as for the African desert as the African deserts thirst for water. Unquote. There is no more penetrating description that I have ever come across to articulate what my sense is that most of the students in my classes at Whitworth want from me as their teacher and why they're actually in a theology class to begin with. Consider, for example, a student who agrees with the claims that God is love, 
that God created the world for love, and that love is the, the basic point of that person's life. A person agrees with all of those claims. Does that student really know that God is love? In the deepest biblical sense of the word, no. Kierkegaard's point is maybe, but maybe not. The truth is not known until it takes up residence in a person's life. Until it begins to express itself in and through her. In other words, cognitive agreement is a necessary but not a sufficient condition for theological knowledge. To know the truth requires commitment to the truth. It requires standing in right relationship with the truth. Like I've been saying in the last few talks, it requires living in correspondence with the truth. And it's that kind of knowledge that theological educators ought to be aiming for. And if Bart and Kierkegaard are right, if knowledge of God is thoroughly existential, then the task of theological education cannot be merely descriptive. We have the additional responsibility of helping people explore the personal implications of the doctrines, and the scripture that we are trying to teach them. Neglecting this side of our work is as easy as it is irresponsible. Even worse, neglecting this side of our work reveals a basic misunderstanding of what it means to know God. I hate it when people stand up here sanctimoniously and criticize. And I never do that. But let me just say this. I can talk this definitively because I am guilty of all of these things. Not because I'm so fed up with other people, but because I'm tired of seeing it in myself. For years, I taught Christian theology at Whitworth without attempting to do any of this. I convinced myself that I was a professor not a pastor, and that wasting precious class time exploring the practical implications of Christian doctrine was too homiletical, it was too personal, it was too academically unserious. Parenthetically, if you want to make an academic person feel terrible, the biggest thing that you can say to them that will make them want to crawl up and die is to tell them that their work is unserious. That is such a... Just try it sometime. <laughs> they will hate you if you say that. And what I think is that to do theological education right, you have to become immune from that criticism. I'm not saying you have to be unserious. I'm saying it's more serious to do theological education this way than it is to do it the other way. Amen. Now, I am slowly beginning to understand that all of those reasons that I came up with were nothing more than pretexts designed to disguise moral and intellectual cowardice. 
flimsy excuses to let myself off the hook, to protect myself against criticism, and to compensate for my own incompetence. It's simply the case that I had no clue how to help students think along these lines. I had no idea how to help them engage in the unpredictable art of theological imagination. And so I just didn't. But this is precisely the kind of guidance that most of our students are searching for, at least until academia conditions them to forget why they became interested in God in the first place. Students want to know what it might mean for them to live as Christians. And they expect us to help them clarify their allegiances. And yet, it is precisely here that teachers are tempted to commit the opposite error of the one that I've been describing. As our students and the people in our churches struggle for clarity, as they long for someone to illuminate this confusing world that we all inhabit, teachers easily fall into the trap of posing as all-knowing oracles, experts with all the answers. Now, we all know that anyone foolish enough to assume that role will eventually end up becoming ridiculous. But even more than that, the attempt to assume that role reveals a basic misunderstanding of our relationship to the people that we're educating. The moment that we begin to operate as quasi-omniscient gurus or sages with the solution to every problem, we exchange teaching for propaganda. We exchange instruction for demagoguery. In theological education, God does not call us to deposit definitive theological formulations in the minds of the people that we're teaching. Our task is not to initiate people into our minds. Our task is to initiate them into the mind of Christ. We, as teachers, are responsible for thinking with students. We are not responsible for thinking instead of students. To do otherwise is to confuse education with indoctrination. And while many, and I don't use that word lightly, I mean it literally, many of our students will want to hand their freedom over to us. Because after all, it's way easier when someone else thinks for you. Succumbing to that temptation is lethal to theological education, at least to real theological education. Now, of course, there are risks with this approach. Once students start thinking for themselves under the lordship of Christ, but on their own two feet, you and I have less control over where they will end up. 
But control is an illusion anyway. And besides, are we really so convinced that our perceptions of the truth are superior to those God himself might lead our students to discover? Even if it were possible for us to fix our ideas into the minds of our students, is that something we'd really want to do? The simple fact is that theological reflection is dangerous. But since submitting our minds to Christ is an aspect of Christian discipleship, should we not expect it to be dangerous? You cannot think about Jesus from a safe distance any more than you can follow Jesus from a safe distance. And while attaching yourself to him is dangerous, so also is seeking safety in the crowd or in timeless theological formulas or in a teacher who does your thinking for you. Kierkegaard is especially and unusually good on this point. He mounts a searing attack against teachers who give the false impression that, that one can become a Christian merely by thinking the right thoughts about God or being socialized into a Christian culture. He hates it when teachers give people that impression. Jesus Christ wants followers, not admirers. And while following him involves thinking about him, thinking about him is not the same thing as following him. Teachers and students alike face an abiding temptation to confuse conceptual awareness of the truth with existential acknowledgement of the truth. And when we do that, Kierkegaard mercilessly notices what we're doing. He writes that, quote, doctrine is the laziness of aping and imitating for the learner, and doctrine is the way to power for the teacher. He, sketch, he sketches what he calls a preposterous comedy in which the Apostle Paul is given a theology examination, which he fails miserably because he does not know how to answer most of the questions that are in the catechism. Kierkegaard compares the scholarly world of theology to a horse race in which riders, quote, rush past one another, yell and shout, laugh and make fools of one another, drive their horses to death, tip over and are run over, and when they finally reach the finish line, covered in dust and out of breath, yes, then they look at one another and then they go home. And, forgive me, but it's unforgettable and it has to be said, according to Kierkegaard, quote, if a lark wants to fart like an elephant, it will end up bursting.
And in the same way, scholarly theology will also burst if instead of being what it is, it tries to be the supreme form of wisdom, unquote. Anyone who has ever been to an academic theology conference knows what Kierkegaard is talking about. And I cannot get these passages out of my head. Once you internalize them, they begin to influence everything you do when you're teaching people about Christianity. But it would be a mistake to draw the conclusion that Kierkegaard, or we, rejects the basic doctrinal affirmations of the Christian faith. Of course he doesn't. What he's doing is ridiculing the abuse of doctrines. Indeed, doctrine itself, to the extent that it becomes an impediment to offering ourselves completely to God. And the warning that he gives us is invaluable. But his whole authorship is unintelligible apart from the confession that Jesus Christ is both divine and human. Kierkegaard's fight is not with doctrine, and nor should ours be. It's with the misuse of doctrine to support an, an intellectualized form of Christianity that evades the demands of discipleship. His point is that to know the truth is to embrace the truth, to acknowledge and conform to the truth, to affirm the truth in such a way that our lives, and this is his way of putting it, reduplicate the truth in existence. He's saying, look, if God were an inanimate thing in the world, or an idea, or a principle of logic, then this is not how knowledge of God would work. There's nothing inherently contradictory about a biologist making a breakthrough discovery while pulling the wings off of a butterfly. But knowing God is not like that. You cannot simultaneously know him while personally refusing to offer yourself to him. Kierkegaard expresses this point vividly when he writes, quote, Wherever God is in truth, there he is always creating. He does not want a person to be spiritually soft and to bathe in the contemplation of his glory. But in becoming known by a person, he wants to create in that person a new human being. Thus, he reminds us once again, the goal of theological study is not merely to understand, but to exist in what one understands. I, that's all I really want to say. I think we have... Plenty of time to talk about all of these things. So, where do you want to begin? Wait, do we have plenty of time? Yeah, we have plenty of time. Yeah. So, I was a philosophy student at a Christian university enough 15 years ago. And my question, this, this came up even in your earlier lectures about BART, 
is how ought we to reorient our anthropology, how we understand what it means to be human so it actually lines up with this reality of reconciliation. But I think that also aligns with your thoughts about theological education. How can we educate theologically at the university or in churches in ways that actually respect a more full understanding of anthropology? Yeah. So how can we kind of yeah. blow that up and so it's not just about yeah, really, really good narrow question. heart and soul? Good question. Here's what I want to say. Um, I would thank you. I would never presume to stand up here and say that I know the way that everyone should teach Christianity. And here's why I wouldn't presume that. I think really good teachers are good at discerning what these particular students in their classes need to be taught. So I don't know that I could speculate about how to do that, but what I would say is that you can't teach well if you don't know your students. And part of learning, at least my own, through my own failures, part of learning how to become a better teacher is realizing that it's not good enough to teach important stuff in your classes. The, the question is not whether the stuff we're teaching is important. It's whether it's as important as the stuff we could be teaching our students. And I, I just think that theological education, as I've experienced it, and just education in general, is very mixed on that. In other words, I rarely learned anything in class that I thought couldn't be um, understood to be important. But I learned a lot of stuff that was, I'm convinced, way less important than other stuff I could have learned. And I, I think part of this just has to do with the way that church life and academic life work. You get socialized into doing things in a certain way, and it's really hard to break out of that. Half of us teach 18 to 22-year-old kids as if our dissertation advisor is standing right behind us taking notes, examining whether we're getting it exactly right. That is just dumb, people. <laughs> that makes no sense. So I, I guess I would just say it, it requires creativity and it, it takes a willingness to be viewed by your colleagues as a little bit strange. But also, if you do it well, um, I think it can catch on. Yeah. That's a great question. Yeah. In the back. I just wanted to ask something related to this morning. When you were talking... Uh, um, you said, since it's, from, since it's from Christ, this alien righteousness, um, can it ever be lost? Um, you know, that question of whether we can lose our salvation um, for good. And um, so that's just the question I have. Uh, this, this alien righteousness that is not ours, we don't possess it, but we, can, we do respond to it. Can it uh, be lost? Uh, if we do respond to it at one point in time, can it later on be lost? Thank you for asking. Yeah. Um, the way that 
I've been trying to frame it is that what Jesus Christ has done for us um, can, can never be lost. It's always what it is. But when we think about our own response to that, well, then, of course, um, our response varies. Thank God that he does not require us to have faith in our own faith. Um, the, the best way that I've heard this put is by Paul Althaus, great Lutheran theologian, flirted a little with Nazism, but let's not hold that against him for a second. Um, he said, I don't know if I have faith right now, but I know the one in whom I have faith. That's a really helpful way of putting it, I think. And like I was trying to say earlier, and this I think is as true for Calvin as it is for Bart, a recognition that our lives are hidden with God in Christ permanently, indestructibly, for good, is precisely what gives us the freedom to try to obey, to try to live in ways that are faithful. If we think of it the other way, that it's my, the, the quality or sincerity of my faith or the strength of my own life that makes it so that I don't lose this love of God, then that's a recipe for all sorts of um, not only spiritual illnesses, but psychological illnesses, I think. Good Christian theology is psychologically healthy. It's life-giving. I'm convinced of that. You uh, talk about thinking with students as opposed to thinking for them. Um, and I can imagine that happening in a classroom setting with Q&A and that sort of thing, and also some of the essays you assign. Um, I, it's a little harder for me to imagine that happening in the context of Christian worship, um, at least the traditional form of the 20-minute sermon and the songs and all of that. Um, how would you envision this? So um, teaching that takes place within the context of a sermon, you mean it's not dialogical? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. I mean, in some ways, yes, of course. Um, but I, I hope all of you are always talking with your parishioners and with people you respect about the stuff that y'all are preaching, Right? Um, I'm part of a preacher's small group, and we get together. They invited me to participate in this, and they get together, and they preach for each other, and they give each other actual feedback about if their sermons are any good or not. In other words, we become each other's students. Um, I realize that that's threatening to a lot of people, but your preaching's not going to get any better if you don't have someone honestly telling you if it's any good or not. So, yeah, I think that that's at least one way that we can, um, that our sermons can, in the broader perspective, be dialogical. Troy. You've been really good at pointing out um, what you perceive are dangers, you know, on this 
this journey of uh, theological education. And um, you obviously see in the academy, Christian education, dangers, right? So you know, communicating uh, theological truths without an application of the Christian life, or at least mm -hmm. a goal directed towards the Christian life. For you in the pews, uh, for you in the pew as a part of a church and part of the American Christian scene, do you also see dangers in the way in which Christian truth is being taught from the pulpit that you would say, hey, watch for this so you're not heading this way as a, as a preacher mm. of the gospel? That's a great question. I, um, how, how do you even begin talking about preaching? Um, I, the first thing that I would say is that I recognize how incredibly difficult it is to preach on a week-to-week -week basis, and I don't do that. So my initial instinct is just not to tell you any of the thoughts that I have about the preaching that I hear. <laughs> but I'm going to resist that initial instinct <laughs> and just tell you that as a person who goes to church every Sunday and listens to sermons, I am absolutely desperate for a simple, clear message that opens up the scripture to me in a way that connects with my life. You would think that wouldn't be that hard, but I will tell you, it is, I'm sure, present company excluded, of course. It, there are so many pastors who, at least on the evidence, seem not to think about preaching that way. The... Our, this, our great preaching teacher at Princeton Seminary, Cleo LaRue, has so many great lines. One of them just is, when a student get, would get up there in a preaching class and give a, a sermon, he would say, you got pearls, but you got no string. <laughs> My own experience of bad preaching is that it's bad not because there aren't a lot of good thoughts in the sermons. There are. It's because they're not disciplined enough. Most sermons that are bad are bad because they did not have the discipline to pick a particular topic and to preach about one thing and instead preached on and on and on about a bunch of things. Now, had they divided that up into a dozen sermons, it would have been great. But they don't. And I think that they don't. And I wouldn't want to speculate about why they don't, but it seems to me like they don't. And so I think that um, one of the things would be just to preach shorter sermons. I do not know a single person in the pews who has ever gotten angry at a preacher for going too short. <laughs> and if you can only have 10 or 15 minutes to talk about this one thing that you're talking about, just make a sermon that long. Tim Keller is one of America's very best preachers. I mean, I hope you listen to his sermons. They're just extraordinary. He is just a pro. He's so good at it. And I would like to say the net effect of his preaching has overall, when it comes to how other preachers respond to him, been negative. Because Tim Keller can preach for 45 minutes, 
but most of the rest of us can't. So I think that our sermons should just get shorter, and they should be clearer, and they should be simpler, and they should be about one thing. I learned that in Princeton Seminary, and I still believe that. I'm sorry to do this to you. I, I, I love that question. I would just love to hear Haley's answer to that as well. Oh, great. Me too. Haley has actually been herself a preacher, so she can maybe be even more honest about this than I am. Do you want to hand her the mic? Or? Yeah, give her a mic. Yeah, I've just been sitting listening to what Adam is saying. Um, this is really terribly not very kind. Um, yeah, I mean, my experience as a pastor, it was only for two years. And, you know, for all of you here, that's more like an internship for some people. Um, but it was, yeah, I, you know, I experienced for those two years the writing of a sermon every, every week. And that was enough for me to think, I don't want to do this for the rest of my life. <laughs> and then I went to Scotland. Um, I think for me, it's hard not to be critical of sermons because of my theological training. Um, so I think my perspective may be similar to Adam's because of his the theological training is different from the average layperson who's sitting in the, the pews listening. For me, I'm prone to critique their exegesis, to think about their assessment of the text where are they getting this stuff from? How are they reading it? Do they actually understand what's going on in the text? Do they do their homework, right? Those types of things. Um, because it's gonna sound very familiar now. Uh, rather than jumping straight into how does this apply to my life? Because for me, when I teach, and I can relate this now to, to teaching students, the thing that I recognize in my students that come to Whitworth who have church backgrounds, right, because at Whitworth not all do, but those in my classroom that have church backgrounds, they love Jesus, but they don't know a single thing about the Bible. They think they do, but the moment you say, tell me about Judah versus Israel, they're like, ah, I mean, who, it's Israel. Judah, king of Judah, right, they have no idea what that even means, and those, in my mind, are fairly basic um, aspects of the biblical narrative. Um, being able to articulate um, the general epistles. What are they? How are they different than the gospels? Students can't do it. I give a, um, uh, on, on day one of my classes, I give a basic Bible trivia quiz. You know, it's not great. It has nothing to do with their, their grade for the semester. But it, it's just asking the most basic Bible trivia. And it's really interesting, the answers I get, because it's really, what I mean by interesting is scary. Um, the, the classic is, I ask one question, uh, what, is the, um, what is the animal associated with the story of Jonah? Right, Jonah and the whale, Jonah and the fish. It is really remarkable how few students, including those coming from your churches, all of our churches, who cannot articulate that the story of Jonah has to do with a whale or a big fish. They leave it blank. They write in lamb, which is a good Bible animal guess, right? 
Um, but for the most part, it's just blank. And that's not non-Christian students, that's Christian students. So I would say that um, for me, the issue with sermons, preaching, is the lack of theological, biblical teaching that used to be very solid in the church and now is just weak because we focus so much on application, stories, those types of things. Anybody else got anything else they want to talk about? I just wanted to say about um, dialogue with a sermon. I have a friend who, um, he has his phone there, and people can text him a comment or anything about the sermon, and he responds to that immediately after he finishes preaching. So he, mm. that's just one way. If and people can say th raise their hand too, yeah. but they can just text him, and they do. I, I thank you for saying that. Your people know if you actually want them to tell you what they think about your sermons. They also know if you do not want to hear anything from them about your sermons. They all know that. So if people aren't saying anything to you about your sermons, it's because they don't think you want them to. So I, if I were a preacher. I would do everything I possibly could to listen to what people are saying. Now, I'm a teacher, and I know that people say a lot of dumb stuff. So I'm not saying you agree with all of it. I'm saying you pay attention to all of it, and you change if you need to. So it's cool that he has people do that. Yeah. I just want to say thank you. This has been really helpful. I... Uh... I lament the fact that I have not been creative enough to create environments where I can do this. Mm. Like, I, for me, the first five chapters of Courage to Teach by Parker Palmer mm -hmm. opened my mind mm -hmm. and my heart to what you're talking about mm -hmm. today. And um, so trying to f think more creatively about what is the environment in which I can foster a community in which practicing the truth, you know, truthing can be practiced. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's, that's what I hear you calling us to is, yes, there's the preaching event. And in the preaching event, I think we can start to create a community in which obedience to the truth can be practiced. But we also have to be thinking of creative venues, which yeah. we don't have a classroom where they have to come or they get bad grades. Right. So we've got to figure out in the church going forward, what does this look like to help communities form where we can have these conversations? And I don't know, I don't know the answer. Well, I mean, you're thinking, it, I mean, you're thinking along these lines and I think they're exactly the right lines to be thinking about. We are in a state of educational emergency in the church. This is what Haley is talking about. And in emergency situations, um, we don't have the luxury of doing it in the old ways if the old ways aren't working. So we have to try to be creative and figure out new ways. We don't figure out a new gospel, thank God, but we do think about new ways to try to help initiate people into the Christian vision. And like you say, that has a lot to do with whether or not our communities are healthy enough to allow us to do that. 
and how you cultivate such communities is um, a question that you guys would know a whole lot more about than I would in larger communities. I only know how to do it in a, in a single classroom. But can I say this, though? If people know that you are for them and not against them, they will give you so much leeway and they will become interested. But the minute that people think that you are, um, think you're smarter than them or think that you know everything and now your task is to point out all of their errors, they just will check out. They won't come. So I just think that, I mean, speaking of Parker Palmer, unless students have a sense that you love them, and I mean that in the biblical sense of the word love, um, they're not going to respond to you or to your teaching. But if they do have that sense, man, I'll tell you, they forgive so many errors of yours, so many errors. Or at least that's, they, they have done that for me, and I'm grateful for it. Yeah. I'm not quite sure how to formulate the question, but if, if I picked you up correctly, what you were saying, that you want, you believe good theological education starts with good thinking, but doesn't end there and gets to action. Yeah. What about the not, the skipping that first part? My experience has been too much theological education just rushes to action. Yeah. And is yeah. more a reflection of psychology yeah. or experience yeah. or, or whatever. No, it's a great question. And I, and I wondered about whether the point that I'm making um, here tonight would be one that all of you would have any interest in at all because you perhaps think maybe, you know, there are in some churches, there's too much emphasis on action or application or whatever you want to call it. Um, yeah, I don't really know. I'm just telling you that if you were to go to the American Academy of Religion or the Society of Biblical Literature, or if you were in the currents of how academic people think about theology, you would realize that this approach that I'm trying to articulate is, um, is just not how most people do it. So I'm currently working on a book about all of this stuff because I think that there is no good book about teaching Christianity, not a single one. Augustine wrote a really good one a long time ago, but that's it. And so I just figured, hey, if nobody else is going to write the book, at least I'm going to try to. But I think that there's um, a need for it. But yeah, your point is a good one. You can make the opposite mistake, too. I've had the privilege of working with teams in, in uh, Eastern Europe, and in particular in sharing the gospel with Muslims. And part of our learning there is a Muslim person is clearly not interested in talking about Christianity or being a Christian. But they're very, very curious about Jesus. And as a result of that, I've changed my terminology and my preaching, so I no longer use those terms, Christianity. Instead, I talk about being a Jesus follower connected then with other Jesus followers that we call the church yeah. 
And that, I have discovered, really opens doors because it points to a relationship with Jesus instead of a religion. Yeah, no, that, uh, that seems very intelligent to me. Um, thanks for sharing that. Kierkegaard described his work as, um, he described himself as being a missionary to Christendom. And um, we're now in a situation in America where, and in the West, where we all know that the church and Western culture are divorced, right? Christendom is dying, if not dead, which means that we're all missionaries. And the missionary situation requires us to speak in ways that people can actually hear. Um, so I think you're really smart to do it that way. Adam, if I could go back a little bit, uh, I wonder if there's not a tension between what you said and what Haley said, and not to raise conflict, but it's, it is a, it, yeah, it makes it more fun, and it'll be great for mail call tomorrow, but... You know, the tension that I feel is what Haley said in believing passionately this pressure that we should do incredible exegetical work. We should spend time in the text. We need to be theologically solid and be able to convey great biblical insights and truths and theological insights and truths. You've got to be able to tell several really good, moving, emotional stories, have five points for practical life, and then do it in 15 minutes. And I don't know how to put all that together. It doesn't sound that hard to me. <laughs> I feel you. I, I mean, um, again, I, I'm hesitant to say anything in response because I'm here in a room full of pastors. All I can say is that um, preaching good sermons every week seems extremely difficult to me to do. Um, I'm endlessly impressed by people who do it well. Um, again, I want to just repeat what I said before. Maybe one way to start feeling... Um, more confident in the sermons that we're preaching is just to make them shorter. It's a lot easier to preach for 10 minutes than it is to preach for 30 minutes. In a way, it's a lot more difficult. I see what y'all are saying. Nobody believes it more than I do, obviously. I read strunk and white elements of style, omit needless words. That's very difficult. I get your point. But if you know that you have 8, 10, 12 minutes and you're disciplined, that can sometimes be a helpful people to start producing sermons that are actually really excellent. Um, but you guys have your own strategies. Yeah, all I will say is it's just really hard. Um, all of us teach children also, either in Sunday school or in class or children or grandchildren. How would you apply this to teaching children? I don't, okay, so at Whitworth we have this thing where, like in all colleges, they have different levels of classes 
Like there's a 100 level class, and there's a 200 level class, and a 300 level class, and they're supposedly harder the more you go up. Just to be very open here, I have no idea what those numbers mean. My courses don't ever change depending on those numbers. They're entirely just an attempt to talk to the actual people that are there. Um, I was talking to a friend a second ago about youth ministry. My own sense is that if you can talk to junior high kids about Jesus, then you can talk to anyone about Jesus. And if you can talk to junior high kids about Jesus, then you can talk to younger children about Jesus because those younger children are often far more sane than seventh and eighth graders, <laughs> right? So obviously we have to tailor our form of communication to the actual people and their maturity levels and developmental, um, where they are developmentally, but I actually just think that the thing that you would do with any person that you're talking to is to actually talk to that human person in such a way that they can hear you. Um, question or comment. I appreciate what you're saying. I have the privilege of serving as a preaching professor in Mexico, mm. in the Presbyterian Church of Mexico Seminary. Mm. And it's not because I'm very good at it. In fact, I was once walking with the president of the seminary and lamenting my faulty Spanish and my lack of credentials. And he gave me a a saying, he said, we have in Mexico a saying that is, cuando falla el caballo de puro sangre, el burro hace, which simply means that when the thoroughbred horse fails, a jackass will do just fine. <laughs> and he went on to say that, well, all of us feel the same way. All of us feel inadequate, mm. but the reality is that nobody else is here to do it, so thank you. Yeah. And when my preaching classes, I, I try to say basically at the beginning and any just two things. Number one is, please draw some connection between what you preach and what the biblical text you're preaching on says. It's a radical thought for many people in that culture, because there's the biblical text and there's the sermon, and there's just no connection between the two. So we spend a whole semester looking at one small text, looking at every word, every relationship, every phrase, trying to figure out. And the other thing that I try to say, and I don't know if it's radical or not, is I don't care what you write. I care what the people hear. And we spend a lot of time, and I did both of Fuller and of Princeton, because I went to both of them, and on writing sermons. And we don't have a measure of how the people have heard what we have said that's effective. So I at least say, if they don't leave with some measurable activity, action that you've asked them to do, then you've preached, and how do you measure what you've, what's effective or not? So it's not what you write, it's what they hear. That's what I tell them. Tell me I'm wrong. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. That ties in a little bit to my next question. How do you know when you've succeeded? I don't think there's any way to know. 
I'm, I'm dead serious. Um, I think that this has taken me a really long time to learn, that I can have a student in class sit there in absolute silence, not say a single word an entire semester, and every single class period, they're, they're in a life and death struggle. I can also um, imagine that there are students for whom the classes were interesting and engaging and fun, and they thought they liked them, and they participated, and the class did absolutely nothing for them. I don't think that there's a reliable way for us to measure it. I, my point is that I can't evaluate whether a person's life is uh, obedient or not. I'm very grateful that that's not one of the things that I'm trying to evaluate as a teacher. Yeah. I have a question. Well, I don't know who said it. I think it was Ignatius who said, preach the gospel, use words if necessary, mm -hmm. and that the gospel is caught as much as taught. Mm -hmm. So... There's something about, you mentioned, or I think you mentioned it earlier about mentors, mm. uh, role models, and so on, mm. all of us being imperfect uh, specimens of that, if you will. Yeah. So theology is really, 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 really important, but that I, I just wonder about, Presbyterians are really um, concerned about words, versus the word on some, some occasions. So just put that together for me. <laughs> no, this is one of the um, best, or say best, but yeah, maybe one of the best parts of being reformed is that we care about words. Um, we care about literacy. We care about education. Um, the, the more difficult challenge is whether or not the people that are coming to our churches are being, like I said a few talks ago, shaped by technologies that prohibit them from being able to listen for any more than just a couple of minutes. Or whether they appreciate the kind of precision that the best of the Reformed tradition has to offer in our sermons. I mean, I, I just think that we're entering into a kind of um, dark ages intellectually. And it's going to be a lot more challenging for the reform to preach in the serious, disciplined, intellectually sophisticated way that we have traditionally done. It doesn't mean we should not do it. We should. But it's just going to make it a lot harder. Um, the cultural context in which we operate is making it a lot harder to do that. Yeah. I, I, kind, of, I kind of wanted to respond to somebody that asked about success. Who asked about success? Was you? Okay. Um, I think I know when I've succeeded in this weird thing that's happened to me, and I know it's happened to everybody here, preaching for, you know, 30 years like many of you, and I have had this happen a handful of times, where a couple weeks after a sermon, somebody comes up to me, and their eyes are lit up, and they say, when you said blah, 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 that absolutely changed my life. And I'm sitting there smiling, loving them, and nodding, and I'm thinking, I didn't say anything remotely like that. I swear, I know for a fact, I wasn't even close to that. But it's in those moments that I, I really feel like somehow the Spirit worked through me, and it was best because I couldn't take any credit for it at all. Point, my point is, 
um, a, a somewhat radical point, I think. It's certainly different from the way that I hear most Christians talk about um, God and us. I think it's far more difficult to read what God is doing off the surface of history than most other Christians seem to think that it is. That's my point. I can guess if God's working in someone's life. I can suspect that he might be. I can pray and hope that he is. I just don't think that I have any definitive way to determine what's actually going on. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. I, I, I certainly do believe that um, God has promised to make use of us, and so we bank on that entirely. But whether or not he actually is doing that in a particular person, I just don't have any confidence in my capacity to judge. And like I said before, I'm super grateful that I don't feel like I'm called to do that. Can I just say this? Um, I just don't think, and I want to repeat a point that I made in the talk, I just don't think that it's our job to counsel people definitively on what God is, is calling them to do in their lives. Um, I think that as much for pastors and parishioners as I do for teachers and, you know, university teachers and students. When a person is desperate and then they come to you and they want you to tell them what to do, it's your temptation to tell them what to do. And I think we can be present with them, we can pray with them, we can offer a, a, as much counsel as we possibly can, but I am highly, highly suspicious of people assuming this role just because we're leaders and they want us to, as if we are capable of directing them into the path that God is leading them. I think God wants all of us, no matter what age, to participate in that process along with him, not just to have someone announce it to them. We done? Let's do it. Thanks for listening so well, everybody.